Wow. All right. I just want you guys to know how, uh, how much I labor in getting ready to do what I'm getting ready to do. Because I get it. You know, put the slide up and everybody be depressed with me together. Um, I get it. Yeah, there it is. Yay! Let's have another church service. Can't wait to bring my neighbors. I get it. But my mom shared something with me this week that um, really encouraged my heart. You know, she's she's in the Word. Praise God for godly moms. Amen? And uh, she's been reading through a, a New Testament commentary by a great man of God named John Corson. And he was talking about the role of a shepherd. And she, she brought this to me, and it really encouraged my heart. And I want to lay it out here before we get into some weighty portions of Scripture, sobering portions of Scripture. I get it. This is a sobering series, but I hope it accomplishes its purpose, and I hope you hear my heart, okay? Point number one, he said, you know, the shepherd's job is twofold. Number one is to feed the people. And how many of you know, I just want to share from our pastoral team, we want you to be well-fed. We, we want you to have a balanced diet. We want you to get good food. We want you to be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. We want you to flourish and be let's be like a spiritual greenhouse. Amen? And so when we pray about what to do, what to preach on, what's God saying, life groups and every other ministry, we just want your entire family to be blessed. We want you to grow in the knowledge of God, not only in your head, but in your heart. Amen? But he also said this. He said that the secondary role of a shepherd is to warn. And, uh, and this is a quote that he shared that was powerful. He said, when a shepherd feeds his people, but he fails to warn his people, he's merely fattening them for the kill. I thought, whoa. There's a lot of places you can go in America today and be told how wonderful you are and peace, peace when there is no peace and, and, uh, and all the uh, icing of the gospel. And there's a lot of good icing. And you know what? Eat the icing. It tastes really great. It's sweet. Um, but God continually rebukes shepherds in the Bible for not speaking his word and especially for not giving warnings. Because how many of you know when the prophets showed up in the Old Testament, the kings weren't all that excited. In fact, remember the one time when the prophet showed up, the king said, I don't want to hear this guy. He always brings a bad report. Well, he wasn't bringing a bad report. He was bringing an accurate report. How many of you know a, a false report in the day of judgment is terrible? When you say peace, peace, and disaster is imminent, that's not a good report. It sounds good. But when, when the tough times come, then the people aren't ready. And you know what? The, the enemy has a field day. He eats a lot of sheep because they're just bloated and fat and, 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 uh, and they haven't been warned. They're not ready. And so I'm just trying to lay some groundwork here because the premise has been that, you know what? We are not in a good place as a nation. And this is not subjective. This is not because God gave me a personal vision in the Holy Spirit, although he does things like that to people. But I'm just telling you, from the word of God, when you read the word of God, how I many you know that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever? He does not change. And the way that he deals with nations has not changed. And the fact that he's a holy and just God has not changed. And what we've tried to say is that we can we can present a false idol of God in our churches if we don't present the whole counsel of God. If all you ever hear is how much God loves you and how great the grace of God is, and that's all you ever hear, I'm just telling you, you'll be a fat sheep because that's not the whole story. The other side of the story is God is a holy God and he's a just God and he's a true God. And because he's holy and just and true, he has to 
punish that which seeks to destroy what is holy and just and true. How I many of you know when God judges sin, it's not a, it's not because he's a bad God. It's because he's passionate for truth. It's because he's passionate for life. Why does God cause us to pause in our, in our steps and say, wait a minute, are we living the way we should be living? Why does God cause us at times where we go through something difficult or we get a spiritual spanking? What's the purpose of this? It's because God is all about abundant life. That's the good news of the gospel. He is for us. He's not against us. He wants us to live life to the max, to the fullest, the Bible says. So when we embrace sin, when we continue to resist him and we reject him and we go on stubbornly in our ways, the worst thing you can hear is, oh, it's just the grace of God will cover that. Don't worry about it. You know what? There are people today that will be walking, for instance, into an abortion clinic that are believers, and they're saying, you know what, I know that this isn't right, but the grace of God will cover it. That is a perversion of grace. You should tremble in your shoes if you're in a position where you're justifying what you know to be sin because God's grace is going to forgive you or cover you. That is a deception. The grace of God was never intended to give you a license to destroy yourself and to dishonor God, who's the author of the grace. The grace of God was given to set you free from sinful patterns and the stubbornness in our own heart so that we could live a life God-pleasing. That's why God gave us grace. So even there, we got if, if there's a message, if you looked at all the messages preached in America in the last five years, I'll bet you the grace message is the top message. And I'm, listen, I'm all for the grace of God. Thank God for the grace of God. But I'm not for a, I'm not for a half-baked grace message that only emphasizes the mercy of God at the cross and takes away totally human responsibility on how we respond to the grace of God. How many of you know you can pervert the grace of God? And I don't want us to be guilty of ever perverting the grace of God. Amen? How many of you, we've been singing about the presence of the Lord, and, and I sense the presence of God in this place today. Did you? I sense the presence in my own, his presence in my own life. We want the presence of God with us. If God's not with us, we're just a religious social club. We're, we're worthless to help the, wor- the world. We need the presence of God. And so with that in mind, let me launch into another passage of Scripture that is heavy and sobering. Um, next week, we're going to talk about, okay, Pastor, we talked about what, you know, triggers the judgment of God on a nation. But I don't want to, this, the purpose of this message is not to leave us heavy and hopeless. The purpose of this message is to prepare us so we can be part of the solution. And so next week, we're going to talk about that. Then we're going to move into a series on the book of Daniel dealing with how do we live in a Babylonian culture with courage and conviction uh, and, and commitment to the things of God. How do we do that? Because I believe this is going to be the church's finest hour, not her worst hour. Amen? So you all got my heart. I'm laboring to give you my heart. <laughs> I'm not mad. God's not mad. He's not, he, in fact, he loves his people. He's for us. He's not against us. But we need to realize the times in which we're living, and I believe they're sobering times. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1, and we're going to begin in verse 18. And I'm reading from the Amplified this morning because I want to amplify it. (laughs) I want to spread out. I want to give some meanings to words. And I want you to feel the weight of this passage. It's one of the heaviest passages, I think, in the whole New Testament. Verse 18. For God does not overlook sin. 
We need to stop right there, do we not? God does not overlook sin. I shared last week, there's not one sin that will not be judged by God. The question is, do you want to pay for the judgment yourself, or would you like Jesus to pay for that judgment? I think it's pretty obvious we need Jesus to pay the bill, not us. God does not overlook sin, and the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who in their wickedness suppress and stifle the truth. We mentioned that this wrath of God is the backdrop of good news. Good news is not fully good news unless it's portrayed on the backdrop of the wrath of God. The wrath of God, God coming to judge sinners of which you and I, that is our lot. That's what we were born into. We were born into sin. And guess what? We sinned every chance we got before Jesus intercepted us. Anybody know who I'm talking about? The good news of the gospel is that even though I deserve the judgment of God, Christ has taken my place. But if I never feel the weight of the holiness of God, if I never feel the weight of the coming judgment of God, I will never appreciate fully the grace of God, and I'll never live accordingly the way God would have have me to live. Does this make sense to everybody? Unless you see the huge dark cloud of God's judgment that is coming on the earth... You will not live properly when you see the beautiful sunrise or the beautiful sunset or the beautiful clouds unless it's on the backdrop of the wrath of God. Now we said, we said last week this wrath of God that we're talking about is a wrath called the wrath of abandonment. It's not that God's out swinging his club trying to punish everybody because he's mad. It's what happens when we repeatedly turn our backs on the Lord. When God gives us his word, but we choose not to obey it. When God tells us his heart and tells us he wants a relationship with him, but we reject him. And how about this? When a nation begins to pass laws that promote things that God says is wicked, that is an overt act of wickedness that brings the judgment of God on the nation. When the courts of this nation punish what is good and true and reward what is wicked, you are, that is a sign that a nation is getting ripe for the judgment of God. Now this stuff is happening all around us. So God simply says, fine, I'm going to leave you to your own devices. I'm going to let you make your own choices. I'm going to let you turn and run your own way. And God just withdraws from us. I believe that happened 15 years ago. On 9-11, I believe with all my heart that God was just saying, fine, you've lived in rebellion, you don't want me, you don't want me as a sinner. That all started decades before. God just said, fine, I'm going to leave you up to your own desires. you got the most powerful military on the planet, great, you guys cover it, you guys protect yourself. How many know there's not enough planes, soldiers, CIA, FBI, police officers to try to stop every wicked attempt that where people would try to hurt the United States of America and our citizens? So... The point is, I'd rather have the Lord be my shield and defender. How about you? I'd rather have the Lord guarding our borders. I'd rather have the Lord exposing the plots of the enemy. I don't want to do it our own way. I'd, I'd rather have God helping us on these things. But God just says, fine, I'm going to, I'm going to leave you. And some of you, you know, might be tempted. Oh, let me back up here. Two weeks ago, we talked about the wrath of abandonment as it relates to when God declares Ichabod over a church. Now, let me just tell you, when, when pastors are not living righteously, when the sheep are not living righteously, God's not impressed with us just showing up on Sunday morning. God, God is a holy, righteous God, and he expects us to honor him and who he is when we come together, which means he wants us to get our act together first, right? And the worst thing you could ever have written over your church, welcome to Living Stones, Ichabod, where the glory of the Lord has departed. 
Come to our church. God's not here, but come to our church. We got great singing and great teaching, but God's not here, but come on anyway. God forbid, amen, that that's ever spoken over this house. The only thing that matters is God's presence being in this place. Who changes lives? God does. Who sets people free? God does. Who heals bodies? God does. Who strengthens marriages? God does. Who blesses our children? God does. Who blesses us, prospers us financially? God does. How many of you think it might be good to have him show up? And then what about personally? Y'all remember the story of Samson. Samson had a great anointing to be a deliverer. But y'all remember that story. He had a lust problem. He had a problem with the ladies. And he took the anointing that was on him and he used it for his own selfish purposes. And you remember Delilah coming into his life, right? And she kept teasing him. She's a Philistine seductress. And she, tell, tell me the secret of your strength. Tell me the secret. He kept messing with her, right? And y'all remember that one time when he finally told her, well, you know what? My strength is in, is in my hair. And if I cut my hair, it's a sign of my strength and I'll be as weak as a normal person. And so the Bible says in Judges 16, verse 20, then Delilah cried out, Samson, the Philistines have come to capture you. The Bible says when he woke up, he thought, I will do as before and I will shake myself free. But look at the words that follow. What a tragic, tragic statement. But he didn't realize that the Lord had left him. He didn't realize that God was no longer with him. Now, why did the Lord abandon him? Because this was an ongoing, stubborn pattern of iniquity in his life where he was messing with God and messing with the presence of God. And finally, God just said, fine. And God lifted his presence off of Samson's life. And the Bible says next, look at that. The Philistines captured him. They gouged out his eyes. They took him to Gaza where he was bound with bronze chains and they forced him to grind grain in prison. I want you to see a couple of things that happen. When, when people of God or when our nation loses the Lord and stops following God, what happens is we lose our eyesight spiritually. We lose our sense of discernment. Samson, because he wouldn't honor the Holy Spirit in his life, ended up having his physical eyes gouged out. He was effectively blind which was a picture of the lack of spiritual discernment that he had. And he was reduced to the level of an animal. He, he was grinding grain like, a, like an ox would grind grain. How many of you know sin has a way of blinding you to the glory of the Lord and leaving you as an animal? And that's what sin does. It degrades us. It takes people made as kings and queens, princes and princesses, made in the image of God, and turns them into animals. And that's exactly what we see here with Samson. And so... I want us to take a look at this whole idea of the abandonment of God as it's found here in Romans chapter 1. And I want to look in particular at the process of abandonment. Some people say, well, pastor, you were, pre- you were preaching out of the Old Testament and thank God Jesus came and we're not under the judgment of God. We don't have to worry about that. Well, personally, you're right. You don't. I hope everybody in this room that loves Christ, you know that part of your inheritance is Jesus already paid the price of your sin and you'll not have to stand before the judgment seat of God. Hallelujah. But I'm not talking about personal salvation. I'm talking about our nation. I'm talking about how God deals with nations. And it's totally different. And I want you to see here in the New Testament, God's process of abandonment. And I want you to see in rapid succession here in in three verses where Paul mentions the same phrase over and over again. Look with me at Romans, Romans chapter 1 verse 24. Look what it starts off with there. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. Jump down to verse 26 with me. That is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. There we have it again. 
Look at verse 28. Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking. The King James says God gave them over, but the picture is the same. Why, what, why is God abandoning? What's, what's this look like? In the Greek, this word was used for a legal situation, a courtroom where the judge declared somebody to be guilty, and then they came in and they carted that person off to receive their punishment. When God says he's abandoning us, he's literally saying, I'm declaring you guilty, and I'm calling in uh, the team here to take you away to receive the punishment that's due you. Three times in three verses in one chapter, Paul uses the same phrase. Now, what brings about the judgment of God or the abandonment of God? I want to give you three steps that are found here in Romans chapter 1. The first one begins with the lustful heart of human beings. Step 1, and I want you to read verse 24 with me. It says, Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their own hearts to sexual impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. And then it adds here parenthetically, abandoning them to the degrading power of sin. Notice the problem begins in the human heart. The Bible says this in Jeremiah seventeen nine: The human heart is the most deceitful of all things. It's desperately wicked. And who really knows how bad it is? You know, we hear a lot of people today promoting uh, the freedom of the will. All right? Freedom of the will. But I want you to see something powerful. Ever since the fall, we have been anything but free to choose righteousness. In fact, the Bible says your heart, apart from Jesus, is desperately wicked. That means the passions of your heart. How many of you have ever been scared if God ever left you to yourself? I mean, have you ever just seen like what gets stirred up on the inside of you when you're left to yourself? Like something doesn't go right. And you might not be out there in the front yard, you know, whipping your lawnmower and cussing at the top of your lungs. But on the inside, there's a lot of stuff being stirred up. Hatred, anger, perversion, lust, uh, selfishness. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You are anything but free to love God and choose righteousness. You're, you're a basket case. I'm a basket case apart from the Lord. The problem begins with wickedness. It, it deals with the passions and desires of the human heart. And have you noticed that when you meditate on evil long enough, you begin to act on it? I remember hearing some of these folks that were involved in pornography. It started off with soft porn, and then it got a little harder and, and more explicit, and then it got into violence, and then it got into with kids and, and horrific, perverted things. Before long, I remember uh, when James Dobson, remember years back, in, interviewed the serial killer who, was, who had killed a bunch of young ladies down in Florida. And he confessed that the open door that led to this incredibly violent, perverted behavior was his lifelong addiction to pornography. What you gaze upon, you become. What you set your eyes upon eventually gets in your heart. And eventually when the, when the passions of your heart reach a certain level, you begin to act out on the very things you've meditated on. This is why, if you look at the prog progression here, we move from... A lustful heart to degrading passions. And I want you to see verse 26. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading and vile passions. Notice it's, an, it's, a, it's a step downward. For their women exchanged the natural function that was, uh, that, that which is unnatural, that is a function contrary to nature. So notice what goes on here. Decades ago, we began separating Sex from marriage in this country. 
We had birth control. We had all kinds of technological advances that were going to free people up from the constraints of marriage. That we didn't need to be locked into marriage. We didn't need to, we didn't need to keep our sexual activity confined in this narrow little thing called marriage. And marriage was under attack and purity was under attack. And everybody had a sexual revolution here back in the sixties. Remember that? Sexual revolution. Well, guess what? We started thumbing our nose at God decades ago as it related to our sexual activity. Then we started embracing uh, 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 divorce on demand. No fault divorce in this country. We can just end a marriage for any reason. It's not, none of the government's business. Well, we used to fight to protect marriage. Why do we fight to protect marriage? Because it was holy and it was a covenant before God and it mattered to God. And we realized that healthy marriages and families mattered to our culture. But we blew off all God's laws. We blew off all God's restraint. We basically said, we don't want you telling us how to behave Sexually, am I, am I speaking to the right country? Y'all with me? And now we find ourselves at, at lightning speed being, being overcome everywhere we look. All we ever hear about now is homosexuality and why it's a great thing and why we should be celebrating it. But I want you to see something and you need to hear this loudly and clearly. We're not picking this morning on those struggling with homosexuality. In fact, I, I hope if there are some of you here that have struggled with desires for same-sex attraction, Jesus Christ can set you free from that. That's not how God created you. That's ne- that will never make you happy. Because here's why. It goes against the created natural order. When the Bible says natural order, that means that there's a God who established parameters for how we should live. And it was God who established the parameters for healthy sexuality. So when it says it goes against, it becomes what's unnatural, that means it flies in the face of the clear divine order and design of God. How many of you know whenever you violate the, the order of God, you might not receive instant retribution for that, but there's always a price to pay for disobedience. We are living in a, in a day to day when I'm scratching my head. We never even talked about homosexuality when I was a child. I didn't even know what it was. I never even heard of it. And if I would have heard of it, I would have thought, that is bizarre. And now our Supreme Court just said two men getting married or two women getting married is a constitutional right. When God just said it is an unnatural, vile, degrading passion that should never, ever find support in our courts or in our laws, lest we bring the judgment of God upon our nation. We have taken a step down, and I want you to see, it's not that people struggling with that sin are worse than people struggling with other sexual sin, but I'm wanting you to see the slide. And remember we said last week, when we were in Leviticus 18, in case you missed last week, I don't know how many churches in America talked about adultery, abortion, uh, homosexuality and bestiality on Sunday morning, but we did. And every time I start thinking, Lord, do we really need to go there? We had somebody visiting last week who came running up to the altar weeping because she said, Pastor, you just described my life. Divorced husband, lesbian relationship, daughter now, living boyfriend, gets pregnant, scheduled for an abortion. I think that was the first three points that we talked about from Leviticus 18. How many of you know, we need to warn because there is pain attached to these choices. When you see a mother bawling her eyes out because her child's going to abort her grandchild and realizing, 
I'm the guilty one because I opened the door to this with my sin. We can talk about the love and the mercy and the grace of God all we want. But listen, there is a price to pay when you spit in the face of God and you spit in the face of the commands of God. And there's a price to pay. Now, Jesus will pay the legal price, but there is a price in here when we walk in sin. People are being destroyed. Lives are being destroyed. Kids are being killed. People's lives are being scarred forever. And we act like it's not a big deal. I'm telling you, it's a huge deal. If you love people, you won't allow this to happen. If you care about your kids and their kids, you won't allow this to happen. You'll listen and say, thank God, somebody warned me. Because for this woman, I don't know, maybe she was going to the church and it was just everything's icing on the cake. God forbid we talk about these kinds of perverted things in church. Well, Jesus talks about these things. The Bible warns about these things. They're not new. They've happened many, many times in history, and people get destroyed, and it breaks the heart of God. So we move from lust in our hearts to degrading passions, and we do what's unnatural. And I want you to see verse 27. And in the same way, also, the men turn from the natural function, God's created order and purpose of the woman, and were consumed with their desire toward one another. Men with men committing shameful acts, and in return receiving in their bodies the inevitable and the appropriate penalty for their wrongdoing. Now, when 9-11 happened 15 years ago, Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson began correctly stating this is a sign of the judgment of God on our nation. Let me just tell you, they were mocked. They were ridiculed so much that many of them start backing off their statements. Can I just share that? They're like, well, God, God's not some meaning. He's not punishing us. The same thing with AIDS. I heard this when AIDS came out. Why is God punishing homosexual people for having sex with, with men or, or, or women with women and contracting AIDS? Is God punishing them? Well, it depends on what you define as punishing. He's not... He doesn't have something special out for sinners where he really wants to get them. He loves sinners. He gave his life for sinners. He shed his blood for sinners. Are you kidding me? He paid the ultimate price so that we would not have to live that way. But listen, when a man uses his sexual organ and puts it in a place where human excrement comes out of the body, you are going to get a disease, not because God's mad at you, but because you're living in direct violation of the natural order of God. We can't keep living this way and expect that somehow God just turns his head. You cannot live in perverted ways and do perverted things and not reap the consequences in your flesh and blood. And you'll lay there and you'll die of AIDS and God will love you the entire time. But you're paying the price of thumbing your nose at God's divine order. Just like we would think a person foolish to jump off a skyscraper because they think they're Superman. You can think you're Superman. You can have feelings of Superman. You can meditate on Superman. You can do yoga and think you become Superman. But when you jump off that building, you have violated the natural order of God. And listen, whether you're forgiven or unforgiven, you're dead in about five seconds. You're dead. And you wasted your life. It's gone. Young people, hear me. 
playing around, you're out partying, you're drinking, you're in that car accident, and you're paralyzed for life, or you're dead. Well, where was God? What are you doing? You're trampling the grace of God. You're taking him for granted. You're trampling the anointing of God on your life because you're like Samson and you don't care. The presence of God is not precious to you. That's why you keep going on and on and on and on knowing that it's wrong. And when you think God's going to be there, all of a sudden he's gone. What a terrible place to be. We have a nation that's becoming more sick, more diseased. Why? Why? Because we don't care about the natural order of God. We don't stand in awe of the natural order of God. You know, I've said before, I've given this as an example. Every time a young person is in chemistry class and you put two chemicals together and you heat it up to a certain degree, a chemical reaction takes place. And we should be standing in awe at the natural order of God. Who put those laws into that matter? How does that happen every single time? It's a law. Where did that law come from? It came from the lawgiver. It came from God. But you know what? When it comes to sexuality in particular, we act like God doesn't care. It's just like that. That's just like that experiment. Every single time you violate the natural order of God, there is a price to pay. It's not always immediate. And that's where the deception comes in. It's not always immediate. Let me tell you this. Does the Bible say that we should not go to bed at night unless we've dealt with our, the, the, the wrath in our own heart? And we have to deal with unforgiveness, right? Before we go to sleep, right? Isn't that what the Bible says? Don't let the sun set. Isn't that what the Bible says? How many people lay in bed every night? Chewing, you know, the anger and the vengeance and the resentment and thinking about those people that have hurt them. And then you wonder when you get to be my age or whatever and you got heart conditions and you need a bypass and you, you got migraine headaches and whatever else you're dealing with. Where's God? What are you doing violating the natural order of God? He told you not to let that in your heart overnight and yet we just blow it off, don't we? I'm talking to church people here. Am I talking to the right crowd? talking to church people. We wonder, why am I sick? Why am I infirm? I thought Jesus died to set me free. He did. Why don't you help him out a little bit by obeying him, by honoring his law, by recognizing that he's sovereign. And look at where it goes next. It goes from the passions of our heart to depraved passions in our bodies, and it ends up with depraved minds. Look at verse 28. And since, as they're not see fit to acknowledge God or consider him worth knowing as their creator, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do things which are improper and repulsive. Improper and repulsive. We begin to love what is evil and twisted and perverted instead of honoring what is good and true and beautiful. And the Bible goes on, follow with me in verse 29. Until they were filled, that is permeated, saturated with every kind of unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, mean-spirited. They're gossips, they spread rumors, they're slanders, they hate God. They're insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of new forms of evil. Disobedient, disrespectful to their parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, without pity. Look at verse 32. Although they know God's righteous decree and his judgment that those who do such things deserve death, yet they not only do them, but they even enthusiastically approve and tolerate others who practice them. In other words, they legislate it, which is what our laws do. Our laws codify behavior. They tell what is good behavior and they tell what is evil behavior. 
Have, have you found it appalling as I have? I look at, I look at our politicians today. Not at all of them, but you look at the, the ones at least that have the most voice today, and I'm thinking, that is the most irrational, insane position to hold when you look at just science or you look at social studies or you, you look at certainly the principles of scripture or just plain old reasoning and you go, how come people cannot connect two dots that are so readily apparent? Has anybody been amazed? Like how, how come our nation is, we can't lead ourselves out of a wet paper sack? What is the matter? Listen to me. It's a judgment of God. When you have leaders that can't see their way out of a closet, when they're brilliant people, it's a judgment of God. It is, it is a giving over to a depravity in the mind where people can't even use their normal thought processes. The, you know, the Bible says that God has put his law, written it on our hearts. And we have a conscience that is sensitive to the law of God. You all know what I'm talking about. It doesn't, you don't have to be saved to know that it's wrong to abuse a child. Unsaved people get it. You don't have to be saved to, to realize that incest among family members is wrong. You don't have to be saved. At least you didn't have to be saved, but guess what's happening? As darkness creeps in on our land, things that were once very obvious now become celebrated. It's things that we used to say, that is wrong, we now celebrate. Do you know Hollywood's been celebrating sex outside of marriage for decades? I used to hear Christians say, oh, I love such and such program. Well, the program was a bunch of single people living together in the same apartment. I'm scratching my head going, what's happening every week on that program God hates? And it's your favorite program. Oh, I love that program. You're celebrating fornication. And then when you or your children live it out and you're devastated by what happens, you're shocked. But guess what? You celebrate it in your house every week. I remember sitting there watching the show one time, and God just spoke to me and said, you know what they're promoting there and laughing about? I hate, and the reason I hate it is because it destroys those people, and it destroys people who do that. And all of a sudden, I had the fear of God come into my heart. I'm 16 at the time. I'm not claiming credit for this. This was the Holy Spirit in my life. And I began, I began looking at TV entertainment. I said, why am I finding pleasure in something that brings God displeasure? Why am I laughing and celebrating for, for entertainment purposes something that Jesus was nailed to the crossover, beaten beyond recognition, and in agony shed his blood so that I would never have to do that or experience that. And I'm getting entertained by the very thing that killed Jesus. Even as I'm saying this, God, I pray for a sensitivity in our consciences to return to a standard of holiness and integrity that would prick our hearts and break our hearts with the things that break God's heart in the church that we would awaken. God, help us to be sensitive that wickedness shocks us, that evil shocks us. God, help us. I'm going to run through these fast and furious. Four reasons for God's abandonment. And I want you to see God as a righteous judge builds a case against a wicked nation. God does not deal with that nation instantly, but he builds a case to where that case is airtight. 
I want you to see this quickly. The first thing God gives us is revelation. The Bible says in verse 18, God shows his anger from heaven against sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Listen, they know the truth about God because he's made it obvious to them. The reason why hell is just is because there's not a single human being that's ever lived on this planet that has not operated with enough knowledge of God to cause them to say, there must be a God. Whoever you are, God, please reveal yourself to me. I thank you for my life. I thank you for this amazing planet that I'm on. God, you're wonderful. I don't know who you are yet, but I know that you're there. God says that atheists are flat-out liars. I need more facts about God. You're a liar. Your own heart condemns you because you know that there's a God and you know that he exists. Why do you rebel against him? Why do you act like he's not there? Why do you pretend he doesn't exist? You're going to be held accountable, God says, because you suppress his knowledge because you don't want his knowledge in your mind. And the reason you don't want his knowledge in your mind is because you want to live life your way because you think you're smarter and you think you can do it better and you're deceived. And God says, I have revealed my glory to every single human being and everyone will have no excuse when they stand before me because I, you know that you know that you know that there was a God and yet you choose to reject him, which is our second point. Rejection of God. Look at verse 21. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. They began to think of foolish ideas about what God was like. And as a result, their minds became dark and confused. You know where the most darkness and confusion is? It's at our public universities. Those are some of the most dark, vile places you'll ever be. If you want to be educated into imbecility, go off to some of our public universities. What a mess. Talk about darkness and confusion. Now we're going back to complete uh, uh, segregation in our universities. We're wanting to segregate the races again, create safe places so I won't be threatened. I mean, we're, we've just absolutely lost our minds. Absolutely lost our minds. We wouldn't honor God. We wouldn't embrace God. We reject him from our public lives and our private lives. And which leads us to point number three, rationalization. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. Now, I want to drive this point home. How many of you know your heart will always exploit your mind to justify what it wants? This is why you got to guard your heart. Have any of you tried dieting in here? And man, you're like, all right, I'm going to eat better. And you eat a salad for lunch. But that salad just leaves something missing. Any of you guys know what I'm talking about? I can only eat so many salads. I need like a baked potato with sour cream and cheese and butter and stuff like that. And and a big steak. Hey, let's put butter on the steak too. Lots of it. And salt. Salt on top of the butter. Oh, I'm getting hungry just thinking about it. But your mind, your mind says, you know, you really shouldn't eat that. Because it's not good for you. It's, your blood pressure's been high. Your cholesterol's off the charts. You really shouldn't eat that. But what you say is this. Hey, you ate a carrot for lunch. <laughs> good point. I ate... I ate a salad for lunch. Or, you know, you're eating a salad, but there's a gallon of blue cheese salad dressing on that. See, your mind goes, man, you know, I can't, I don't know why I can't lose weight. I'm, I'm eating a salad. Yeah, but what are you eating when you're not eating a salad? 
your mind will always justify what your heart wants to do. Say, so, well, yeah, I know I'm not married to this guy, but he's so sweet and I love him and, and we're close to married. Close to married ain't married. So we twist it and we do all kinds of cartwheels, gymnastic backflips and oh, we're so limber when it comes to rationalizing the word of God. And God says, you guys do that all the time. You twist my word. Truth is always sacrificed on the altar of desire. You say, hey, it's not my problem. And I, I like this. You're like the lady that came to visit the psychiatrist and she walked in with a duck on a leash. Get the picture, all right? Probably one of those Appalachian or whatever we talked about, flying geese, all right, on a leash. Himalayan geese. And the doctor looks at her a little bit confused. He says, how can I help you, ma'am? And the lady said, it's not me. And she points to the duck. It's not me. It's my husband. He thinks he's a duck. I mean, you know, it is her. She's got her husband on a leash. Well, it's not really her husband, but she thinks it's her husband. And she, she thinks her husband thinks he's a duck, but she thinks he's a duck. I mean, it's all confused. It's like the person in the insane asylum. And they asked him, who are you? He said, George Washington. And, and, and the other guy says, you are not. Hey, who said that? God. All right. Uh, you get the point. <laughs> People in insane asylums are all out of touch with reality. Well, guess what? The world becomes a big insane asylum when we're ruled by sin and evil desires. Now, I'm going to end with this. It leads me to the last point here, which is why God's case is pretty firm against us right now. It's interesting that when you reject God, you end up with religion. And look what happens in Romans one twenty three. Instead of worshiping the glorious ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and reptiles, animals. You know, it's a funny thing about human beings. A lot of times they'll say, you know, I remember when I was in school, they were like, oh, you're the, you're the preacher kid. You're the religious guy. You know what? Every single human being is unbelievably religious. Whenever somebody says to you, well, I'm not religious, say, oh, yeah, you are. You might not worship God, but you're worshiping something. And you're absolutely committed to it. In fact, this is the crazy thing. We shape our theology to fit what we worship. See, everybody's a theologian, too. We got people that are pushing a certain agenda for this or for that, that God says evil, and they twist the scriptures to justify what it is, the perversion that's driving them. See, we're going to worship something at the end of the day, and it's called idolatry when it's not God, and God will judge us for our idol worshiping. In fact, we, we create our own gods to justify the depraved desires of our and our darkened ideas, and we worship things, created things, instead of the Creator. Isn't it interesting, we went to the passage on Moloch last week, that we take something like child sacrifice, and we actually turn it into a religious thing, where we celebrate it, and we do it as an act of worship to a demon god. Something as horrible as, as that. We're doing the same thing in America today. You know what, there, there, would be, there would be priests and prophets of a different order, offering blessings on Planned Parenthood, and everything that they're about. And doing it in Jesus' name and invoking God's presence. I'm just telling you, this kind of stuff, saints, is wicked. And if God is a courtroom judge and he's looking for a reason to judge our nation, can anybody see with me we're in a heap of trouble? Now, I just say this in closing. How many of you know before those planes crashed into the Twin Towers, nobody had an idea that was even going to happen? Did you, you can all remember where you were on that day. I, I was coming here to work. 
And someone told me, uh, supposedly a plane crashed into a building. That's all we know about it. Everybody's running to find a TV set, right? Did you know that was going to happen that morning? You know, when the flood came, did they know it was going to happen that morning? You know, when the various other t- judgments of God fall on the people, did they know that that was going to happen that day? No. I'm just telling you, I, this is a warning. And I believe it's a biblical warning. That when you look at what America is up to right now, there should be a sense of foreboding that this will not continue on for very long. Okay, so pastor, what do we do with it? Well, we're going to talk about that next Sunday. But here's what I'm telling you. When there are calls to pray for your nation, or even in your own private life, pray for your nation. How about personally? Are you, are you running after God with everything in your heart? Have you dealt with the idols in your own heart? Or is there compromise in your own heart? Where's, where's your connection with the Lord? How close, how tight are you? Are, are, are there areas of compromise or willful stubbornness in your own life that need to be addressed? How many know we'd start with us? And then you know what? Here's the cool thing. Like what happened in, in Louisiana. Who's the first folks showing up to help people? The church. You know, when, you're, when, when things are blowing up around you, that's when the church springs into action. That's, those are our best days. We're running into the fire. We're not running away from the fire. We're running into the flood. We're not running away from the flood. Why, why would people do that? Because we love Jesus. Because we're messengers. We're ambassadors of hope. So I believe we're going to be coming into our finest days. I believe, I believe even though God is going to shake everything that can be shaken, I believe for the church of Jesus Christ, the true church of Christ, lovers of God, lovers of his presence, lovers of his word, we're going to be entering our finest hour. Anybody excited about that with me? I'm not afraid of the future. I hope you're not. I know who holds the future. I'm not worried about that this next election is going to make or break whatever. I'm, God is so much bigger than all that. Let's let our political idols be destroyed. Let's let our financial idols be destroyed. Our sexual gods be destroyed. Let's just blow all that stuff up. And then let's let God begin to do something amazing because he always does on the heels of a great shaking. Here's the point. I just don't want you shaken off the boat. I'm sharing this as a pastor. I don't want you shaken off the boat. Here's what I want you to say. Thank God. Our pastor preached on this a while back because he told us this was coming. He told us this was coming. So you won't be stunned. Like, what in the world's going on? How many of you know we need to know how to navigate the difficult seasons? And here, ready for this? There will be a leadership vacuum. Let's fill it. There will be a leadership vacuum. People won't know up from down. In fact, the Bible says when all these shakings happen... That the mountain of the Lord, the hill of the church, where God's people are, people will come from the nations of the world for wisdom. So we can't be freaking out like everybody else. We can't be full of compromise like everybody else. You know, we need to hear the voice of the Lord. We need to be sensitive to God. Our consciences need to be open. When God says, hey, don't do that. Some of you guys, just this week, the Lord could say, you know what? The way you talk to your wife, mm, that's not me. You know what? You should go, oh, God, forgive me, and run to find your wife and say, please forgive me. I mean, you know, your conscience is one of the best things God could give you, and you need to guard it so it's tender. I, mean, well, I, didn't, I didn't know I made you mad. I didn't know. Well, yeah, because you trampled your conscience so much, it's like dead. Where's the sensitivity to the little things, the sensitivity to the Holy Spirit? You don't know what I'm talking about. 
We are supernatural, loved by God, full of his presence, given his word. We're called to be the head, not the tail. None of that's changed, even in the midst of judgment. But we gotta be, we gotta be what we're called to be. Amen? That's my, can, I hope you're hearing my heart. I just want us to thrive. I want us to kick butt. Did I just say that in church? I did. I, that's what we want to do. I want us to be winning. I want us to be seeing God doing amazing things through us. That's, that's God's vision for our life. So, all right, life group leaders, I want you guys to sneak out right now. Hopefully, the, open those doors, Andrew. Let the smell of fresh-baked cookies just come wafting through those doors. Oh, yeah. Here we go. If you're not in a life group and you're saying, you know what, I'd like to meet those people. Where do you guys live or what night are you meeting? That's what we want you to do. They're going to be in the Welcome Center. We want you to go say hi. We want you to grab a cookie, hang out, eat some food. The rest of you, stand to your feet. I want to pray for you as we leave. Amen. Let's bow our heads and let's, uh, let's focus on our king this morning. Lord, we come humbly before you, recognizing the sins of our nation, our, our sins as well. Lord, we stand guilty as charged. And Lord, we stand like Daniel and the other great men and women of God through the Bible who stood up and identified with the sins of the nation. And then they were able to receive forgiveness and mercy and they were able to be part of the solution. So God, even on this anniversary of 9-11, it reminds us that there's real enemies who hate us. It reminds us that we live in a fallen world. It reminds us of the activity of Satan who wants to lie and steal and kill, kill and steal and destroy. And God, it reminds us that we're not living on a playground, but we're living on a battleground. So Lord, we want to be wise. We want to be smart. We want to be full of your spirit. We want to be in tune to what you're saying. And Lord, even as we leave this church today and we go out into the world, we know that's our battlefield. It's the mission field. And so Lord, use us to bring hope to people. Use us to turn people from evil and sin and turn them back to you, God. And Lord, we just believe you for a great harvest that when things and everything that can be shaken is shaken, that only you remain and that people will come rushing to you, Lord. So God, forgive our nation. Thank you for your long suffering and mercy. It's amazing. And Lord, we ask you that you would have mercy once again, bring forth a great harvest of souls and re- and reformation in our culture, but also, Lord, a revival in our church, we pray. And Lord, we love you, we honor you, we thank you. You are our everlasting hope and confidence, Lord. In you, we place our trust. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen.